All right, we're uh, reading from Acts this morning, chapter 16. If you can uh, open your Bibles there or unlock your phones to your Bible app, Acts chapter 16, uh, reading verses 13 through 34. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole, and his whole family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning, church. It's good to see you here this morning. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, and if you're you're new, a couple of things. Uh, First of all, uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, You honor us with uh, your presence. You honor us by joining us and hanging out with us uh, this morning. And um, we hope you feel like part of the family, that you feel welcome here. Secondly, um, I have a favor to ask you. It's your first Sunday and the pastor's already asking a favor. 
Um, the favor is, the request is that you introduce yourself to me if we haven't met yet. I'd love to get to know you. If you don't have to split right away, I, I'd love to, to meet with you and, and talk with you. Um, we're, we're in a, a new series uh, called Back to Our Roots. And I want to start with this, that I, I think that many of you can think of someone in your life, your friend, family, that, that makes you think, you know, I don't think they would ever come around to becoming a follower of Jesus. I, I just don't think that's where their life is, is headed. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, but you found yourself in church for one reason or another, and you might say, yeah, you know what, that's me. I'm here because somebody invited me, but I have no plans on following Christ. I, I don't think my life would change in, in that direction. Or you're not a Christian, and, and you look at a friend and you think, he's a Christian? I think I'll pass on that Christianity stuff because apparently it doesn't work. Most of you, I think, and based on all kinds of conversations that I've had with so many of you, you tell me about how your life has, in very real, concrete, obvious ways, has been transformed, radically renewed. It's your life, your whole life has changed. At one point, you didn't want to have anything to do with God. You didn't want to have anything to do with church people. Maybe you were struggling in a, in a broken world, and God, if he was real, didn't seem anywhere to be found. But then out of nowhere, out of nowhere, you experienced supernatural grace. Out of nowhere, in a very real way, you experienced supernatural love. God's truth became precious to you. His, his truth became life-giving and, and relief washed over you. You were filled with hope that you could change. You were filled with hope that your life could change. You were hit with the power of the greatest news that you've ever heard in your entire life, that Jesus lived for you and that he died for you to save you and to change you. And now... You see that Jesus and, and his good news of who he is and what he has done out of grace, you see that the gospel can change anyone. And, and you don't have to pretend to be better than you really are. You, you know, you've become convinced that God loves you just the way you are and you've become convinced that God loves you so much he doesn't want you to remain as you are and so he wants to change your life for the better in ways that bless you and the people around you in ways that you can't even imagine. That is the power of, of the gospel. His grace not only saves you, but his grace transforms you, and it is still at work in your heart and in your life, and, and you've come to a point where you've realized, this is real. I know it. I am betting my life on it. I'm betting my eternity on it, and if God can change me, he can change absolutely anybody. In our series called Back to Our Roots, 
We're looking at churches at different cities, uh, you know, found in the book of Acts as we follow Paul's journey to each of them. And, and we want to see, the reason we're in here is we want to see what we can learn from the early church back then so that, so that we can be the church that God has called us to be today, Right? Now, as I planned out this series and, and I was working through the different cities, um, I didn't realize until I was preparing this that I, I addressed this passage about a year ago in, in one of our church life series. And so as I introduced the three characters to you again, some of that may sound familiar, but I want to put an emphasis on, on what, can, what can be changed by the power of the gospel in us as a church, not just as individuals. So the city that we're looking at now, the church that we're looking at now is in Philippi, located in Macedonia. It is modern-day Greece. It is a Roman colony with a strong military presence and extremely diverse in Macedonia. In this passage, Luke, the author, the author of Acts, he shares with us three testimonies of three different people whose lives were radically changed to show us that the good news of Jesus has the power to create a church of changed lives. Now, that is our desire here in our church. You know, I say it in different ways, and, and, and maybe you can help me think of new ways to say it, but we don't want to be a church that just shows up on Sundays, does a religious song and dance, makes us feel good about ourselves so we can call ourselves Christians and feel better than you know, other people who don't go to church or whatever, or treat churches like some lame hobby. We're not interested in that. We may as well shut the doors, shut it all down, because that's just a total waste of time. We are interested in seeing people's lives changed. We want to see people who don't know Christ come to know Christ and, and have a life-changing relationship with Jesus and his family. That's what we're all about as individuals and collectively as, as a church. That is my desire. That is my prayer. And it's not just me. It's the elders and so many of you. We got to keep reinforcing that. A church, we want to be a church that believes that the gospel can change anyone. Anyone. And we see that in our passage. We see three very different people. And if you're here with me a year ago, please bear with me as I reintroduce you to them. It is hard to imagine three people more different. They're different in many different ways, like ethnically. Lydia was from Thyatira. She's Asian. The slave girl was a native Greek, and the, the jailer was Roman. They come from totally different worlds with totally different worldviews and different cultures and different values and different customs. And so they're different ethnically. They're also different economically. Lydia, she's a wealthy businesswoman from Thyatira. She's, she, it's like she, someone, when we described her last time, she's, um, she's got this home in Philippi and, she, and she's kind of like a high power fashion CEO with a house in Fairbanks Ranch, a, a house in Manhattan, New York, and, and a luxury home in Paris. The slave girl, economically speaking, she's poor, powerless, oppressed, and exploited. She has been used over and over and over again to make money for a group of men who have enslaved her like a 17-year-old girl getting pimped out on Craigslist out of a motel in Oceanside by MS-13. The jailer, he's a solid, blue-collar, middle-class ex-GI. He lives in a 30-year-old 
a three-bed, two-bath, single-family home off of Bear Valley Parkway. He's got a pickup fishing boat and a giant flagpole in his front yard. <laughs> These are all different, very different people. And they're different rationally, the way they think and process things. I imagine Lydia learning from maybe debate or reading blogs or theological books and, and, and reflecting, maybe more academic. She wants a Bible discussion with some Q&A. She wants to wrestle with that. Maybe some of you relate to her. I imagine the slave girl learning from her experiences and, and powerful encounters and, and feelings and, and flashes of insights, maybe possibly a little more artistic and creative. Maybe that resonates with you a little more than the other one. And I imagine the jailer being just kind of a practical, uh, down-to-earth guy that would say, show me, give it to me practically. Give me the nuts and bolts. Skeptical of elites, skeptical of emotions, no nonsense. Maybe you relate with him. And they're all different spiritually. Lydia seemed to be different. It seemed to be empty spiritually. I mean, she's got it made in the world's eyes, which is something far more difficult in that culture if you were a woman. It says Lydia was a worshiper of God, a convert to Judaism, even though she was a Gentile. And any Gentile in this day, in this time, in this place, any Gentile who would leave their roots and seek God outside of her community and outside of her family was empty. She was successful, but something was missing. Slave girl, my goodness, spiritually, she is in absolute despair. I mean, she's out of control. Verse 16 uh, says that, that uh, she had a spirit of divination for fortune-telling. And, and a more literal translation says that we met a girl with the spirit of a python, which sounds kind of weird, right? What does that mean? In Greece... There was a famous temple of Apollos where the oracle of Delphi lived, and it was said to be guarded by a python. And so someone like this girl, manic, talked in different voices, made predictions, was said to have a spirit of a python. Her parents could not control her. So you know what her parents did? Her parents sold her into slavery. Verse 17 goes on to say that she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God. And at first, that sounds like a positive endorsement. She's like, you guys got to check these guys out. They're servants of the Most High God. However, commentators unpack that a little bit for us and, and uh, point out that Paul would remember from Isaiah 14 that Most High God is the exact expression that the devil used when he spoke enviously of God. When Lucifer becomes the devil, he says, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne, and I will make myself like the most high God. So this slave girl, she does know about God, but she knows about God through evil. Total despair, total hopelessness. And then the jailer, according to what we see here in the text, doesn't know God at all. I mean, Lydia knew something about God through the Old Testament. The slave girl knew something about God through evil. And here, the jailer knows nothing about God with no interest in religion at all. So they're different ethnically. They're different economically. They're different 
rationally. They're different spiritually, all in drastic ways, and God reaches each of them. Most religions in the world are limited to one type of person, one type of culture, and one part of the world. But here we see God, by his grace, reaches each of these three people as different as they are. And he reaches them in different ways, in ways that are personalized to who they are and where they are. Lydia's been studying the Bible, but she's a little confused by it. I mean, she knows that she was supposed to, you know, obey God or something. She knew maybe a little bit about the sacrifices that somehow someone needed to be substituted for us. I mean, she picked up on that, but only vaguely. What she was left with was trying to save herself through her own morality and through her own obedience and through her own performance and success. And it left her empty. Paul shows up and gives her a Bible lesson. And what happens? It says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. And a a more accurate translation would say, the Lord opened her heart to get it, to finally get it. It all clicked for her. It's because God opened her heart by God's grace, opened her eyes to see it. And what is it that she got? Well, Paul shows her through this Old Testament that she was familiar with, that every substitute, every hero, every every champion, every slain lamb points to Jesus. That Jesus is our substitute, our ultimate substitute that we all long for and that we all need. That he lived a perfect life that we should have lived and he gave us credit for it. And, and, and then he went to the cross and died the death that we should have died for our sins. And it was all because of God's grace, not because we earned any of it or worked for any of it. We could never earn it and we could never work hard enough. And so Lydia finally got it. It's not about being good enough. It's about Jesus being my substitute by his grace. And that's what changes her heart. Her emptiness was over. She had something to live for now. And then there's the slave girl. She's wild. She's out of her mind. And you know what Paul does not say? He does not say to her, hey, 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 settle down. Settle down. Close your mouth and listen. We're going to have a Bible study. He didn't do that. She followed Paul, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. Interesting. Unlike Lydia, she knew that Jesus was the way of salvation, but she hated Jesus. Why? You know what? I've talked to many, I know this from my personal experience and my experience talking with with many people who are are wrestling with their faith and maybe have gone through some some real dark and painful stuff in, in, in life. They feel like they've been sucker punched by, by this world or by this life that, that God has given them and crushed by the suffering. And, and they're furious. If they still believe in God, they're furious with God. And maybe they'll even acknowledge that, that relief is found in Jesus, but they're just too angry. I've seen that. It's very often. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, it, it very easily could. And then what's also easy after that is to seek relief from the suffering 
in ways that enslave you even more. You guys know what I'm talking about? Have you seen this or experienced it? Don't let this, you know, this oppression, you know, make you think that you have nothing to, to um, connect with when it comes or relate to when it comes to the slave girl. This girl was enslaved by evil on the inside and made her a slave to things on the outside, masters on the outside. And so what does Paul do? He goes after the master on the inside. And when he does, her eyes are open to see Jesus as her only true master. The, the power then, the power of evil, was finally broken. This right here is another direct intervention on her heart by the grace of God, and the girl was finally set free. She finally has the liberation that she's been longing for, that the slave owners could not use her anymore to finance their greed. And this leads us to the jailer. Because when the slave owners realized that their income stream has dried up, because she's not this fortune teller anymore, they get angry and they provoke a race riot. That's what we see in the scriptures. And so the authorities have Paul and Silas beaten with billy clubs, sent to prison, tell, tell the jailer to guard them carefully, but we see that the jailer gets excessive. Unnecessarily excessive. What he does, what it says, is that he puts them in stocks to be, that, that were designed to be a form of torture. What that means is in these stocks is that your legs would be stretched out as far as possible, just short of snapping your legs off, and then locked in place, and it caused painful strain and painful cramping, and it was relentless, and he was not told to do that. That's just something he did because he wanted to go above and beyond the call of duty. He's brutal, angry, racist. But then God confronts him with the shocking testimony of lives changed by the gospel in ways that he could not ignore. First, here's Paul and Silas, these two guys who were beaten halfway to death and locked up in this kind of torture contraption. He hears them singing hymns in the middle of the night. I don't know about you, I don't know that I would be singing hymns in the middle of the night. I don't know that what would come out of my mouth would be holy. They were arrested, they were beaten, they were thrown in jail, they were tortured, and tomorrow they could die, and they're singing praises to God. And something so powerful descended upon the jail that it, it caused an earthquake, opened the gates, and the chains fell off. And the jailer woke up, thought the prisoners escaped, and the law was that if you lose a prisoner, you lose your life. And so he draws his sword. He's about to kill himself. But Paul shouts out, stop, don't do it, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. They could have split, but they didn't. What they did was they returned good for evil. And it saved his life. And so he rushes in and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
I mean, he has never seen joy like this. He has never seen love like this. And so now he wants what Paul has and what Silas has. I mean, he's never seen anything like it. It is a joy that is so deep that it sings in, in the night, in the middle of the night, in the midst of suffering. A love so strong, it does good to those who do evil to them. It is the exact opposite of survival of the fittest that's, becoming, that's making a comeback lately. And it's the exact opposite of that. And he sees this grace that's shown to them, and he says, what do I got to do to get what you guys have? Because I've never seen anything like it. Three different people, totally different. God reaches each of them. Each case, he comes after them with the gospel, not a set of biblical principles, not with biblical law. I want to tell you something. Biblical principles and biblical law are worthless if you misuse them, if they're not in their place, if you're looking for biblical principles and biblical law to change your heart and change your life, they are useless. Biblical principles and biblical law never, ever changed anybody's life. Normally we think that, you know, God's grace saves us and then it's up to us to roll up our, our sleeves, get to work on the biblical principles and biblical law to change our lives. That is not the purpose of the law. The law shows us God's holiness. The law shows us our sin. The law also shows us how we can obey God out of response to his grace and glorify. Then it becomes beautiful. Then it becomes valuable. Then it becomes something that you can love as opposed to something that condemns you. So in each case, the gospel not only saves you, but it changes you as well. And here's the deal. As different as we all look on the outside, we're more alike than we think. That's our third point if you're taking notes. See, the girl here, the slave girl, was not the only slave in the story. The Lydia and the jailer were slaves too. And, and you know what? So are you. And so am I, apart from Christ. The Bible says we all live for something. We all look to something to, to give meaning to our lives, to feel like our lives matter, that, it's, that, that we're not just taking up space in, on this planet. Or something that we're looking to for significant satisfaction. And let me tell you something. Uh, it, what it looks like in our world is it's usually career or possessions or our appearance or romance or peers or achievement or good causes or moral character or religion or sports or marriage or children or friendship or a combination of those things. All of those things are good, right? They become worthless when they become what it is that you look to for your significance and your satisfaction in, in your life, and you can't even enjoy them. You think the way to enjoy family is to elevate family above all else? No. You will resent your family if you do that because your family can't live up to what God can do for you, and you'll constantly be disappointed in your family or whatever it is. We're all slaves. And whatever we live for controls us. 
It enslaves us with obsession because we have to have it. It, it, enslaves, us, it enslaves us with guilt you know, because whenever we fail it, it enslaves us with anger. If, if we feel like, you know, something's gotten some or someone has gotten in, in, in the way and has blocked it from us. And then it, it enslaves us with fear. If it feels like it's been threatened, it, it enslaves us with emptiness. If we actually get it and then it enslaves us with despair, if we actually lose it. Lydia, she was a slave even though she was rich and successful, driven to achieve, but it left her empty. Jailer was a slave. We see that, you know, other jailers, when they lost a prisoner, what they would do, what normally would happen, is that they would beg for mercy or they would run for their lives. But not this jailer. He tried to kill himself. He was a slave to honor. That's where he got his identity. If you're not honorable, you're nothing. Then he failed. His honor was gone. So he tried to kill himself. He didn't know who he was anymore. His self-esteem, you know, just blew away with the wind. So my question is this, and I I want you to wrestle with this this morning, right here, right now. Ask the Holy Spirit to, to, to reveal to you who is your, who are the masters that you live for? If it's not King Jesus, and let me tell you something, it's never 100% King Jesus for all of us. We have other masters that are competing for the throne of our heart, primarily ourselves. But what is it for you? What is it that you look to to get your security and satisfaction? We cannot serve two masters. We will love one and hate the other. Here's what we all need. We need Jesus to be our true master. You may, have, you may not be surprised that you heard me say that because I say that kind of stuff all the time. But we all forget and we all need to be reminded, including and especially me. This is critical. Only Jesus is worthy of our service. Other masters raise the bar. They're never satisfied. When you fail, they condemn you and they suck the life out of you. And then we keep going back. Lydia reached her goals, but she was empty. The jailer failed and wanted to kill himself. Paul and Silas had a master who forgives you when you fail and then gives you joy even in the midst of intense suffering. There is no master greater than that. No other master compares. And so here's what this means for us. I mean, we need to ask ourselves, what do we learn? We learn that the gospel can change anyone. Listen to me. Becoming a Christian is not a function of class or race or ethnicity. It's not just for the ambitious or the oppressed. It's not just for the rich, not just for the poor. It's not just for Americans. It's not just for impoverished countries. It's not just for conservatives. It's not just for liberals. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We forget that so easily. And usually, it, 
the fruit of forgetting that is cultural elitism. And it's evidence that you don't really understand the gospel at all. Or at least not internalized it. What the gospel does, and the second thing we learn under this point, is that the gospel brings people together. It brings people together better than anything else. When I visited the the Kabira slum in, in Nairobi, I did not feel like I belonged there. I did not look like I belong there. But then when I met the local Christians, there was, a, there was a, a, a camaraderie there, a supernatural camaraderie uh, from knowing that, that we had the same king of the same kingdom of God. And, and, and I felt like they were my brothers. Different part of the world, different ethnicity, different social economic class, but I felt like they were my brother. They treated me as if I was their brother. I mean, it changes. I mean, if you've lived your whole life in the good old United States of America, my encouragement to you is if you had a chance, please travel the world and, and go to other countries that, that, that are nothing like our own and meet some Christians there. It'll change your understanding of the kingdom of God. Absolutely. So I've told you this before. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. Um, I've lived in Escondido about six and a half, almost seven years. I'm from National City, closer to downtown, where everybody's from somewhere else. And in Escondido, I keep meeting people who are born and raised here, and so were their parents and their grandparents and great, 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 great. Everybody's lived here forever. They can't get out of Escondido. <laughs> or they get out, and then it draws them back in. And uh, on paper, if you look at uh, the statistics, uh, the demographics, on paper, Escondido is very diverse. In reality and experience, I've noticed that people segregate themselves in Escondido. It's quiet, it's silent, but it's there. And that's new for me. And here's what I think. I think we have an incredible opportunity as a church to better reflect the kingdom of God and the diversity of the kingdom of God if we get this. And I see glimpses of it where brothers and sisters who are totally different from each other love each other because they're united in Christ. Paul used to be a proud, elite, religious, male leader. That was his identity, looking down on women and slaves and Gentiles. But then he met Jesus, which radically changed his heart and radically changed his life. And he started planting churches among vastly different cultures and people all around the Mediterranean. And he considered them as different as they were from him to be his family, to be his brothers and his sisters in Christ. That is the power of the gospel. It's my prayer that we get that here. I see, I, I see, I am so encouraged by the, the fruit that I see growing among our people. I just want to make sure we don't forget it. So often, when people segregate themselves, what they'll do is they'll say, if we're going to hang out 
Uh, I only want to hang out with people who think like me and vote like me and believe like me. They may not say that out loud or consciously, and maybe they do. I have heard some people say, you know what? Uh, they, they're, they're, they don't understand Reformed theology. There are Arminian theology. I don't think we can be brothers and sisters in Christ or something similar. Or, you know, they're a Democrat and I'm a Republican. I don't think we could be friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. I see that all the time. And it is totally contrary to the kingdom of God and what the gospel produces as far as unity in, in Christ. So many people say, you've got to be like me if you're going to hang with me. And Christians do the same thing. You get your act together, maybe you can hang out with us. But if you come to church and you haven't got your act together and we can all see that you haven't, then we're probably going to look at you sideways until you change. I've seen that happen and people split. It's amazing how when we experience the grace of God, and, and how God has welcomed us, when we see he's welcomed us, a great sacrifice to himself, that will make us loving and gracious and welcoming to other people, even if it means sacrifice on our part. That's what the gospel does. And so therefore, the gospel is our only solution. Whatever else is going on in, in your life that's dark and painful or as frustrated as you might be with, with uh, your, your, your church or your neighborhood or whatever, only the gospel can make you sing in the midst of the misery and the discontentment. The truth is, if you have nothing in this world but you have Jesus, you have absolutely everything. But if you have everything that you think that you want but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And you'll be left empty. If you have Jesus, you can suffer great pain and loss and still sing in the night. And God uses that. He uses you and he uses a church like that to draw people around us and into his grace. That is what God has called us to do. That's how he's designed this gig. One of my favorite quotes, quotes from a Scottish minister of the early 1800s, Thomas Chalmers, I've mentioned this before. He said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection or master is by the expulsive power of a new one. And so I bring that up because when you understand the love of Christ and you discover indestructible joy, other masters will be driven from your heart. And then you'll be free to love people and welcome people because King Jesus has become your, uh, your greatest loyalty and your greatest love. So how do you come to understand and experience God's love? You know what? Maybe you're here this morning. This is new. You're just exploring Christianity. Maybe you hate life right now because you feel empty. You're longing for relief. You're longing for joy. How do you get it? Well, Paul gets to the heart of it when he says to the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust Jesus 
to be your greatest joy, to be your source of life in a broken world. Trust Jesus that, that, that he lived a perfect life and gives you the credit for it, that he died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God in your place. Trust Jesus that he rose from the grave and conquered sin and death and eternal judgment so that you can have eternal life with Christ starting right now. Jesus is the only master who, if you, if you serve him, rewards you, and if you don't, he forgives you. My, my plea, I'm pleading with you, my call to you, my challenge to you here this morning is to trust him today as the only master worthy of your life, and then you will be free. Some of you are Christians, and you realize that you're not relating to people in a Christ-centered way. In fact, you might if you're honest with yourself, realize that you're relating to people in a me-centered way. And, and one of the fruits of that is an us-versus-them mentality, which is so prevalent in religious circles and political circles. And it changes the way that you look at people in fact, you might see somebody on the street who's suffering, who's, who's homeless, who might have a sign needing help. You might see somebody who, who, who is enslaved by the evil one and look at them in such a way that they are evil. And in our minds, instead of seeing somebody that needs to be delivered, we see somebody that we criticize as if we're going to criticize them to Jesus. And that w it's so easy not to view people in need as people to be blessed with deliverance and grace and love, just like you were, just like I was. Whenever we look down on somebody else, because whatever differences we have, it's because we have forgotten that God has looked at us through his love and his grace and through the lens of the gospel so that we can have a relationship with him. So my encouragement to you is to remember God's love for you in Christ. If he is central, if he is your true master, if he is your king, if you're loyal to him first and foremost, he will change your attitude towards other people in the way that you live your life. Now, I'm going to close with this. I'm going to give you one suggestion. Maybe you've been listening to all of this and you're wondering, okay, that's good. What do I do with it? How can I respond? There are many different ways. I'll give you one suggestion, one challenge to you this morning how you can respond to, to this message. I want you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to bring someone to your mind who is struggling and needs God. Maybe somebody who's empty, somebody who's spiritually you know, oppressed or confused, or, or someone who just doesn't view you Christianity as anything valuable because it's not practical. Someone who needs God and needs to experience the truth and love and blessing of God. Is there anybody who comes to your mind Close your eyes if you need to think. Just think of someone or several someones. And my encouragement to you is to pray for them. And when I say pray for them, it's not like God help them not to be an idiot anymore and to come to know you. 
That's the way a lot of people throw around the I'll pray for you thing. That little spat, you know, unfolds on Facebook. And then the Christian says, well, I'll pray for you. Which is not, doesn't really communicate. You're praying for God's blessing on them. And for them to experience the greatest love and joy known to men, humankind. To, to, to experience the love and the grace uh, and the embrace of God the Father. So write those names down and pray for them throughout the week that God would bless them with his truth and love, that, that you would have an open door to share the truth and love of Jesus with them in both word and deed. That's what we see the disciples doing in the Gospels and what we see the, the, the pastors, the elders do uh, throughout the book of Acts and we see in the letters of Paul and, and, the, and the others. Your master, your king Jesus, has given you this calling and it's not a suggestion. The thing is though, is he doesn't want you to be motivated by guilt. He wants you to be motivated out of grace. He is the only master worthy of your love. He's the only master who can forgive you of your sin. He's the only master who can give you true and lasting significance and satisfaction and meaning in life. And it's all of God's grace. If you bask in that, if you reflect on that, if you rest in that, you will find your heart warmed and transformed. Your life, therefore, will be changed. And through him, you will love others as Christ has loved you. And then you'll see their lives change because God used you in their life. God's called you to this kind of life. And God will work through you to reach all kinds of people, especially people different than you, for the advancement of his kingdom and the advancement of his glory. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?